0: Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with seasoned scholar, author, and expert on all things activism, Professor Dana R. Fisher. It was recorded in October 2023. Dana is the director of the Center for Environment, Community and Equity at American University. She's a non-resident senior fellow with the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institute, is president of the Eastern Sociological Society, and is the chair-elect of the Political Sociology section of the American Sociological Association. She served as a contributing author for Working Group 3 of the IPCC's Sixth Assessment Review, writing about citizen engagement and civic activism, and her media appearances include, to name but a few, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, PBS NewsHour, NPR, BBC, and CBC, and her words have appeared in the likes of The Washington Post, Slate, Time Magazine, Politico, Vox, and The New York Times. Professor Fisher has authored over 75 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and her seventh book, Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action, which formed the basis of our conversation, will be out in early 2024. Amongst other things, Dana and I discussed the role of disruptive tactics within the broader climate movement, the importance of fostering community resilience as well as environmental resilience, and what the future will likely hold when it comes to activism associated with the climate crisis. So let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Dana R. Fisher. From your perspective, how can communication help mitigate the worst effects of climate change in the first place?
1: One of the things that my new book talks about is the fact that we have not quite failed on mitigation efforts, but we've come as close as you can to failing without quite failing because of this leaning into incremental policy making that is absolutely insufficient to address the climate crisis. So when you ask me about the way that communication can help to mitigate I think that communication can help to get the general public more aware of the problem to the degree that it is willing to put the necessary pressure on decision makers and we'll call them power brokers, those that have access to power and resources, who are the ones who are making the decisions not to move forward on systemic change that we need. At the same time, I am Not particularly hopeful that mitigation efforts at this point can get us where we need to go with regards to the climate crisis. Instead, I think we need to start leaning into not giving up on mitigation, but leaning into adaptation and building resilience. And when I say resilience, I mean not just environmental resilience, but also social resilience, because we know based on what we've experienced so far in 2023, that the climate crisis is upon us. And based on everything we know from the scientific research that's been being done since the IPCC began, the climate crisis is worsening. There is no reason to expect the climate crisis not to worsen to the degree that we're going to see many more climate shocks that come more frequently and are much more severe than anything we've seen so far. You know, I'm a social scientist. I'm a sociologist. I study decision making and I study people power and the degree to which we need people power to address this problem. But I'm not sure how much communication or anything can get us to the mitigation levels we need. One of the things that we're learning from 2023 is the degree to which we are so ill-prepared for what's coming. So uh, when I think about moving through the climate crisis and any solutions that we have available to us, a lot of it is about understanding, developing more resilient communities, more resilient environments, ecosystems broadly defined, and we're part of that, of course and more resilient decision-making processes that prepares us for the kinds of shocks that we are in for. I think communication is key, and I think activists are going to play a necessary role in that. I just think that we have to bundle mitigation, adaptation, and resilience together at this point. It's just not possible to think about this as being just a mitigation question.
0: Based on your great uh, and lengthy experience investigating activism, I wonder if you could share what role or perhaps range of roles, communication plays in climate activism?
1: Communication does play a role in informing activism, getting the word out, mobilizing people and getting people in the street. But one of the things that I think is really important to recognize is that there is this dialectic between activism and communication, particularly if we think about the role that the media is playing. You know, I've done a lot of interviews and been asked to speak a lot about confrontational activism, and I break it down into two different components and two different kind of strategies that are being used for direct action. And the strategies are direct action to shock. These folks I call the shockers. And these are the people who are really going out there trying to attract attention to the climate crisis by shocking the general public. And the role of communication in that is really to communicate to the public but by using the media as a tool, right? So the more they get media attention, the more valuable it is for getting the word out. And the word is not um, look at this activist who crazy glued their foot to the stadium at the US Open, for example. It's people are so desperate to get the word out that they're willing to engage in radical tactics to gain attention. And the reason they're doing that is because they otherwise don't get attention. I mean, I just was uh, at Climate Week. I was up there surveying the protesters at a legally permitted rally and spoke to a couple folks in the media. But most people in the media said they weren't even interested in going, even though 75,000 people were in the streets yelling about the climate crisis. However, the next day, when a couple hundred were overblocking the Fed and engaging in civil disobedience, all of a sudden, all the media wanted to talk about it. There's something extremely unfortunate about that in terms of thinking about people power, but it also is in terms of communication techniques. I think that people need to recognize that that is why these kinds of more radical and performative tactics are being used, but also they are the ones that are more effective for communicating the message. And what we know from research about this and from historical social movements is that uh, movements have to continually change. They have to continually innovate their tactics. They need to use tactics. that get more attention because, you know, the first time you throw food at a museum, it gets a ton of attention. The next time it gets less attention. And now it's like, oh, they're throwing food again. But communication isn't just about getting people informed so that they actually take to the streets and they engage in all types of civic engagement around climate. It also is what citizens can do when they mobilize. It's all about communicating the need from a critical mass of people, people from around the world that are truly embedded in their communities. And that's one of the things that I talk about at the end of the book is creating community and real solidarity, which is about embedding activism and activists within communities. One of the things that my research shows is that activism is much more effective and has a longer life in terms of communication, but also in terms of engaging people and really providing the, the connective tissue or you know, the glue that holds us together and creates stronger ties when it's actually embedded in campaigns, connected to efforts within a system to work a system, to transform a system to address the climate crisis broadly.
0: the justification that's often used for that kind of act is that, well, by doing this, we get attention and it moves the whole conversation in one direction. Is that something that is supported in your research? Is it something that you can kind of uh, explain to listeners? What is the radical flank effect? How does it kind of unfold? That would be really interesting.
1: So the radical flank is when some activists within the movement decide that the process is not yielding enough effect or that the outcomes are not aggressive enough. And so they decide to take more radical tactics. So one of the points of the radical flank is to push the dialogue and to open up opportunities that are more radical than the kind of more institutional policy avenues that are being discussed within the movement. There's a lot of research that talks about how there are internal conflicts within movements that birth a radical flank. What ends up happening is while the more radical folks end up not getting a lot of support and end up being relatively unpopular, the other groups that are more centrist tend to get more support and support grows for them as part of a radical flank effect. And there's lots of evidence that's working now. I asked of the activists in the streets at the March to end fossil fuels a bunch of questions about the tactics they were participating in and their support for nonviolent civil disobedience. 95% of the people in the crowd at the March to end fossil fuels in September said they supported or strongly supported organizations that were engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience. So the activists who were engaging in these legal permitted marches were very supportive of groups doing this and engaging in a radical flank. So that doesn't show that there's this inner conflict across these organizations as much as you might expect. What I think is really interesting that we're seeing today, and this my research shows quite substantially, is the ways that we also are seeing older activists come back to engage in climate activism, and do it as part of the radical flank. In the United States, we see third act. We also see Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion obviously tends to skew more towards uh, more mature activists, many of whom were engaged in other types of activism when they were younger. It's not necessarily retired people, but it is older people, many of whom you know, we would probably think of as empty nesters, right? So they no longer have to worry about getting home at the end of the day, because otherwise the kids are not going to be able to prepare food for themselves. And so we, we are seeing that. And I, I have data on that, not just from my interviews with the activists that are part of the radical flank, because I interviewed them for the book, but also surveys of people who participated in disruptive actions. So it's interesting because there tends to be this expectation that the face of the radical flank is young people, but if you actually look at the pictures, even the pictures that make it in the media and the media representations, it's not all young people at all.
0: What kinds of stories or experiences typically mobilize people to become active supporters or participants in activist groups?
1: We asked about emotions that people were feeling about the climate crisis, and basically the activists um, report feeling angry and sad are the top two emotions. And we also asked about people's personal experience with the climate crisis. 86% of people in the streets at the March End fossil fuels said in the past three months, they had personally experienced climate change and they listed all different ways that they did. They experienced wildfires or smoke. You know, We had this smoke coming down from Canada all across the United States, extreme heat, which makes a lot of sense. Summer and winter around the globe currently have been breaking records. They also reported personally experiencing sea level rise. But what is interesting here is that a lot of people said, oh, once people start experiencing climate shocks, we're going to see something different. And within the people who are mobilizing so far, we are seeing that. It's still not that many people, though. And that's the big question is, what's it going to take to get a real critical mass in the streets? The book itself builds off of this work that I did on what I call the Anthro Shift, which basically talks about what we need to see real shift in society. It can be around any issue, but the the work that I did is around the environment. And I wrote a paper called Anthro Shift in a Warming World, where I use the example of the COVID pandemic to look at what it might take to get to an actual anthro shift. And the anthro shift is a reorientation of all the social actors involved to prioritize dealing with an issue. Right. So it could be around the pandemic. But in this case, it's around climate change, right? What do we need? And what we see from the experience globally of the pandemic is while there's initially the opportunity for people to use their experience of the threat and their concern about the risk to change their behaviors, they become desensitized to that. And a great example of this, and I talk about this in the book, is the way that we are in the Northeast the United States responded when we started to experience this smoke coming from the wildfires in Canada. So for the first week, there were all these air quality warnings. You shouldn't go outside. They canceled all outdoor activities for the kids that week and thought, okay, well, now people are going to start to mobilize. And there were all these people chattering about it. And I thought, wow, look at this. This is an Amphership. We're going to see it. And I mean, what we talk about there, and there's a lot of research around disaster that says after disaster, there's this window of opportunity that opens. It opened during COVID in the beginning. It opened. Right after the fires started being experienced, after these big hurricanes hit or other types of environmental shocks or climate shocks, right? But they close quite quickly. So the question is, what level of disaster or climate shock do we need to get to to open that window wide enough to get us off of fossil fuels and to shift us away from this addiction that is fueling basically just about everything in our, in our world, in our industrial society? And that's where the communication about the overwhelming transition that is needing, I think, is very valuable. There's a lot of talk about how it can create climate despair, climate anxiety. I can imagine that, and that being a very big issue that we have to worry about. I can tell you from my data from activists that at least the activists, I mean, those are people who are mobilized and went out to a protest. They're not feeling those as their main emotions. What will be really interesting, and we'll have these data in a matter of days, is are the people who stayed home, are they feeling more anxiety and despair? People who feel hopeless, are they less likely to mobilize? I mean, we know that people who feel anger are more likely to mobilize. We got a lot of evidence on that, and that will be a really interesting part of the findings that we'll have out soon.
0: I interviewed Phoebe Plummer, who threw the soup, and they said that being a part of Just Up Oil, being a part of that movement and being surrounded by all those people was the thing that kind of brought the most hope, that community resilience that you sort of suggested earlier as a kind of necessity for us moving forward. I thought that was a, a really interesting response to if your data does indeed suggest that, that just getting out there and being a part of something, whether it's a gardening community or a protest indeed, might be be your incremental step towards uh, self-efficacy. Well,
1: I would just say, okay, so you just summarized much of the last chapter of my book right there. Your points are extremely um, spot on. We need to create community and, and real solidarity. And this is across movements, across identities, across orientations. You know, I lean into research that I did with the different types of folks who are engaging in civil disobedience, but then also into my research that was done on the post George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement in terms of thinking about when we can see a critical mass mobilizing. And it's when we see this intersectionality in the streets and intersectionality within a movement that we actually understand that. We need to cultivate resilience and not everybody needs to be an activist. Not everybody needs to engage in confrontational nonviolent civil disobedience. I think many people are not suited for that or don't want to because of their life or personal experiences and that's perfectly fine. But we need to be cultivating resilience across communities around the world. And that involves not just resilience in terms of planting, you know, bioswales, because there's going to be more flooding, preparing us for water shortages, but also social resilience in terms of thinking about the people who are the frontline and are the communities that are going to be hit first so that those communities are able to survive and they have the support that they need. And that's all part of it. I mean, and that's why being embedded in your community is so valuable, right? Because when we experience climate change and we experience climate shocks, it's not going to be this, you know, abstract thing that happens to somebody far away. It's going to be in your community and it could be extreme weather. It could be extreme heat. It could be wildfire. It could be water shortage. I mean, it could be many other things that we're starting to see happening. But in all of those cases, it's your community and the people whom you're connected with is where you need to have the support to be able to to survive whatever happens. I mean, and that's one of the things that more and more people are starting to talk about with regard to being engaged in activists. Like, is it a black block of folks who are engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience? Maybe. Or is it a community group that plants gardens or helps by removing invasives in the local park? Or planting, you know, trees that can be more resilient to extreme weather events. I mean, like there's so many different ways people can do it, but working together with other people is so key. And I think that also is not a cure for the anxiety and the hopelessness, but certainly a path through it that I think we 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 should be leaning into more and more because it's going to be more and more needed.
0: How important is making headlines when it comes to raising awareness about an issue and recruiting others to the cause?
1: There's no question that getting the headlines is helping to get the word out. And getting headlines, what using whatever tactic is needed to do that, is touching on people who are already what we call sympathizers. As we know, as climate shock's get more severe and come more frequently and affect more and more of us, there are going to be more people who are sitting at home wondering what they should be doing. So the headlines are valuable. Recently I did a couple of different interviews right after the U S open action. I did TMZ live. And it was funny because that was the first question. Like why are they messing with my watching a tennis match? And I said, they're doing it because it's drawing attention to the issue. I've never been invited on TMZ Live before. We've never had this conversation before. And the only reason I'm here is because that one guy was willing to crazy glue his foot to the stadium. And it's funny because we actually had an action here in DC, organized by a bunch of people from some of the, the radical flank groups that are local. Nobody crazy glued themselves to anything. They yelled. They did a banner drop. They got escorted out. No headlines at all. And it's just so interesting because they said to me, oh, well, they shouldn't have done the crazy gluing. They shouldn't have disrupted like that. And I said, but but they tried that and it didn't work. This is why it's happening that way. So I think that grabbing the headlines is really important. I mean, I know that there's lots of discussion about why and how the media should be talking about the climate crisis. And I do think that as we see climate shocks coming more frequently and being more severe there's going to be lots of more opportunities to talk about it that doesn't involve headline grabbing from activists. If you said to me, which one would be more valuable for mobilizing people in mass to do something about the climate crisis, I think it's actually going to be the personal experience of climate change in the form of climate shocks, not having seen, heard, or experienced climate activism. But I think this is an all of the above kind of scenario, right? I mean. Forget all of the above energy strategy. This is an all of the above activism moment where we need to just be open to and comfortable with the idea that we're so off track here that everything is necessary. And any way that people can try to get the attention that's needed and start to focus on these these issues is going to be valuable. And it's going to take everybody.
0: Could you provide some insight into whether the growing trend of disruptive climate protests is ultimately beneficial or detrimental to solving climate change?
1: If it were super successful, we'd see even more people in the streets, but having, you know, having mis- having studied activism and protest for all of my career not only around climate change, I can tell you that we just we're not at the mass mobilization stage of this party yet. We're on track to get there, that's for sure, but we do not see that yet, but I think that that's one of the big indicators of success is getting the word out, seeing more people become sympathizers, and then the sympathizers to become more engaged citizens, and then from being an engaged citizen to being an activist. That's the the natural progression, and the more the crisis wears on and insufficient action has been taken to solve the crisis the more those people who turn to activism then will transition to be disruptive.
0: Looking to the future, what trends or developments do you anticipate in this arena?
1: That's a good question. So I think that we will absolutely see many, many more people in the streets mobilizing and engaging around climate because more and more people will be affected directly by the climate crisis and the shocks that are going to come from it. So as more and more people take to the streets and get more engaged, some of them are going to be looking for the more radical tactics. I mean, one of the things that I, I don't know if I, I clearly stated before when I was talking about the radical flank is that it pulls all the conversation and it pulls the tactics so that what was originally seen as not normal activism, not normal protest becomes normalized. And I think that what will be the natural progression as more and more people are affected by the climate crisis, it gets worse and the situation gets more and more dire, we will see people rising up with the water and some of them are going to become confrontational and the confrontation is likely to get more violent. What I do talk about in the book is the fact that the violence is unlikely to start from the activists. And this is where people who wanna start talking about how to blow up a pipeline, I think they're wrong. I don't think that we're gonna see this you know, monkey wrenching become a really standard practice amongst activists. I don't think there's a precedent for it. And I don't think that it has been found to be particularly successful and effective as a tactic within a broad uh, mass movement. Instead, what I think we're going to see is more people taking to the streets, slow walking, disrupting, annoying the general public, And what we're going to see is law enforcement getting more aggressive, we're already seeing that, and people who are affected by the activism getting more aggressive. During the civil rights period in the United States, we saw that in the form of particularly young Black activists who were engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience getting beaten up on television. And it was, as many people have told me and as has been documented in research, It was the experience of seeing that violence against these nonviolent peaceful activists that mobilized a lot of people to take to the streets and join the civil rights movement in solidarity.
0: What's the single most important aspect of communication that communicators should be paying attention to in their work?
1: I guess communicating that one, we all have the capacity to save ourselves, and two, that we all will be called upon before this is over to save ourselves. My words shouldn't make people feel despair or feel hopeless. This is a time for us to recognize this is going to be one of those moments in. The world where we all are going to have to be called on to work together and communicating that through solidarity is so important because, I mean, obviously in these kinds of crises, it also can be divisive. It also can lead to homogenous groups huddling together. And we see that with those who have access to power and resources are doing that now. But that can only go on for so long. And I think that that's where people power comes in. We're strongest when we work together and we work in solidarity. So I guess that would be the message. There's just no way forward without it. I just, anybody who doesn't see that is not looking and their eyes are closed. And I mean, you can close your eyes and sing a lullaby to try to drown out the noise, but it's going to get louder and louder and it's going to be harder and harder to ignore.
0: What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues?
1: The biggest mistake that communicators make is that they tend to focus on the outliers and not the averages. The reason that I started studying protests the way I did is not because I love going into the crowd and bugging people and asking them to take surveys while they're out there marching and making banners and working together and finding people that they have similar interests with. It's because it drove me crazy to watch the way the journalists would go into the crowd and they'd find like that one family with the Mohawks. And I saw that family with the Mohawks at all the protests and they were the picture and that was the message. And the article that they wrote was about the Mohawk family, not about the masses, not about the 100,000, 200,000, however many people in the streets. It was the outlier, the extremes. They're the ones that get the attention. It's the one person who's throwing the orange powder, not all the people who are rising up and saying we need to do better, we need to do more, and we need to save ourselves. As we move forward, we should be thinking through how to communicate about the general public and the general experience. There are going to be the people who are the extreme, but that is not the story. The story is about us.
0: It was a real trip chatting with Dana for this episode. But what in particular stuck with you from our conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, It was this fascinating insight about older people's involvement in climate activism. That's something I hadn't really thought about before and will probably send me down a rabbit hole of research for a potential future episode. But at the very least, it will have me rethinking my target audiences moving forward. So that's the main thing that I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavours? Thanks to Dana R. Fisher for sharing her time and expertise with the show. It was great. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes, including a pre-order link to Dana's new book, Saving Ourselves, From Climate Shocks to Climate Action. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. If you want to hear more about communication in relation to climate activism, check out previous episodes with Greenpeace Africa's Umbong Aki Fokwa or with Just Up Oil activist Phoebe Plummer. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn, too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the insight and the resilience that we'll need for this essential task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.